one of the problems that we face in society today is that politics has become incredibly short-term, focused on the next soundbite, next news cycle. And there are very few, if any, institutions left that can think 5, 10, 20, 50, 100 years out as to what are the long-term fundamental challenges that we need to deal with. Well, hello there. This is Milena, and welcome to another episode of Scientific Mavericks podcast. This episode is a part of our new Academia Focus series. For these episodes, I will be joined by my colleague and co-host, Alvaro. In this series, we're going to bring to you the most interesting and relevant research areas and the academics behind them. At Hybrid, we are passionate about bringing new thinking, ideas, and technology to life. We believe this can help change attitudes, lives, and ultimately the world. Hivery is at the forefront of reinventing the way retail companies and channels make business decisions today. Hivery is pioneering hyperlocal retailing by combining artificial intelligence, operations research, and human-centered design models to help CPG companies and retailers generate a return on physical retail space investment. Hivery does this through simultaneously optimizing and localizing product, price, space, and promotions. And today, it is my great pleasure to bring back Toby Walsh. If you haven't yet listened to the first part we have released, I highly recommend you doing so before listening to this episode. So, without further ado, we'll kick this episode off with Toby discussing some of the interesting implementations of AI technology that companies are already employing and how it has already affected our lives. I've always liked that quote from William Gibson, the future's already here, it's just not evenly spread. And so you can see in a number of companies some really good examples of how they've used AI to better deliver the, their business to their customers. So whether it be Amazon's product recommendation, you know, what is recommending to you those books that you might want to buy it's a little AI program that learns people's preferences and has learned something about your preferences and what people like you like, or YouTube's algorithms. A third of the videos that people watch on YouTube's are the videos that YouTube has recommended to you, not the, not the videos that you've searched for. The, the Netflix challenge was a, a wonderful example of how people actually built some AI to, to better re- recommend movies that you're likely to, to want to watch. Other businesses in the logistics space, for example, using AI to better route trucks, to save on kilometers the trucks have to drive, to reduce uh, left-hand turns so they don't have to turn across traffic and so do it more, more safely. Lots of, lots of wonderful examples of how businesses can better improve their supply chain, better understand their customers. Switching gear to more industry-focused questions and specifically retail, what opportunities are available for retailers to benefit from employing AI? Well, the retail industry is an industry that has a great opportunity to benefit from understanding its customers better, one that works against really tough margins. And so it's the industry where you can, if you're careful and respect people's privacies and all these things, collect information so that you serve your customers better, you reduce your carbon footprint, deliver what people want more efficiently, more promptly, um, has lots to benefit from 
taking account of people's data and trying to customize towards their individual preferences. At the same time, businesses employing artificial intelligence technology often face ethical challenges. For example, sales optimization can lead to compromising health of the public and the communities. And some businesses do employ certain constraints, like Hyvri uses constraints for high sugar drinks sold in junior high schools. So how can a business find the balance between short and long-term goals? first thing to understand is to realize so much of the unintended consequences that you set out with good aims. You want to increase your sales. You want to better serve the customers by making sure there's more of the product they want. But then you discover there's an unfortunate feedback loop in there that means you're pushing more high sugar drinks onto people and that you should be perhaps offering them some lower carb alternatives. Frequently, we're not optimizing for the thing we really want to optimize, but we're optimizing for some proxy. And then we discover that there's some feedback loop that works in some way that's undesirable. Hivery, I know, is a business that's discovered that. I've also worked closely with other businesses and now actually sit on the advisory board to the Gradient Institute, a not-for-profit that started, to advise companies about how they can avoid these elephant traps that you're optimizing for the wrong thing and there are unintended consequences of what you're doing. Ultimately, I think it's not hard to to end up finding out the right business between the short term and the long term. The best businesses are the ones that are prepared to take a long-term view that it's in the long-term interest to preserve the planet, to worry about the health of their customers. And those are the businesses that are going to be around in 50 years' time. And the ones that only focused on quarterly returns are the ones that will no doubt quickly disappear. The way to avoid these elephant traps is, first of all, to appreciate that there are elephant traps waiting for you. Even the the most tech-savvy businesses make them. The first precaution is awareness. The second precaution is to study your industry and to see what other businesses' mistakes have been made in the past. There are now organizations like the Gradient Institute, which are set up as not-for-profits to help businesses and navigate through this difficult minefield of of problems. And there's still much to be learned. We're still discovering how to avoid many of these things. So one of the unintended consequences might be that some jobs will eventually be replaced by machines, right? Are there any criteria or rules of thumb that can help us evaluate whether AI can replace a human performing a particular task in the near future? Yes, I would always apply the four Ds. Is it a dirty, dull, difficult or dangerous task? In which case, handing it over to machines should be of of benefit. Um, (laughs) Equally, we don't, of course, we don't want to end up in a world where people are just thrown onto the scrap heap of unemployment. And I point out to CEOs, when you see an opportunity like this to automate something that was dirty, dull, difficult or dangerous in your a workplace, you should see this as an opportunity not to save cost. And it is an opportunity to save cost. The most expensive thing in most businesses are the people. So if you've got machines doing what people used to, some some of what people used to do, you could in theory now use this to reduce your costs. But this is a race to the bottom. And certainly in a country like Australia, you are not going to win a race to the bottom. There are plenty of our neighbors around the Pacific Rim 
who are going to have lower wage costs. You've got to see this as an opportunity to lift your game. You've got these people now who understand your customers, who understand your business, whose time should now be profitably used to do the things that only humans can do, to understand your customer better, to innovate, to create, to do all the things that humans are good at and machines are bad at. And so this is an opportunity to improve your product, to improve your service, because otherwise you're going to be out of business in the long term. You might save money in the short term, but again, it's one of these long-term things. If you want to be in business in the long term, now take those people, perhaps help these people reskill with whatever new skills they need, but use those people to improve your game. What would be some of the skills that you think businesses should focus on fostering in their employees to make sure that they're set up for success when machines can perform certain 4D tasks better than humans? So I have an aid memoir for this. It's a triangle. Um, you want to be at one of the corners of the triangle, not be caught in the middle where all the dirty, dull, difficult, dangerous jobs get automated. So at the top of the technical skills, so if you can help equip your employees with data skills and things like that, there's plentiful things they can do to take those data skills to then improve your, your company. Of course, not everyone is that way inclined and not all of your business is focused on, on pure numbers and the like. So there are two other corners of the triangle for the sorts of skills that are also incredibly important within your business. One of the other corners, that's where the emotional intelligence and social intelligence is. Machines have no emotional or social intelligence today. It's not clear whether they ever will have. And even if they do, we still prefer interacting with people. So those people with, with good emotional skills, and of course, if you're a CEO, you probably are that person. I'm always told that the most important skill for a CEO is their emotional intelligence. Anything that's people facing is going to be incredibly important in any business. Those people who really understand other people, understand how your teams work, uh, those are going to be really important components of your business. Well, that's the second corner, and that leaves the third corner, creative and, and artistic and artisan. Machines are not very creative today. It's not clear um, how soon they will be creative. And even if they are, I'm not sure we're going to value too much the things that machines create. We will value the things that are touched by the human hand. We already increasingly value things that are homemade, handmade, adaptability and the creativity that humans have. That's a real edge we still have over machines and ones where, again, you want to encourage your employees to, to be running business. Absolutely. So do you have any career tips for talents wanting to get into an AI company or perhaps even start their own AI business? AI has become a remarkably democratic field these days because there's so many resources, whether they be MOOCs and online courses and AI frameworks, TensorFlow and so on that you can get your hands on that all free. And so if you're willing to invest time, you can pick up expertise. Unfortunately, these are still technologies that require some sophistication to use. You still need to uh, have a master's or a PhD to really drive the technology, which is still one of the limiting factors. Um, so I'd encourage you to go back to university, go to university and equip yourself with that. But, the, but even if you don't, the, if you just want to pick up and apply some of the things that we have today, it is a very democratic revolution that's happening. There's no reason why anyone can't actually start playing with the tools themselves and start innovating. 
Similarly to the triangle framework you use to evaluate skills and tasks, we can also use a triangle to think about stakeholders in the development and growing adoption of AI technology, talent, parents, and businesses. Now that we have covered talent, when it comes to parents, what should they be teaching their children today to be prepared for the second half of the century? Is there a need to redesign education? A hundred percent there's a need to redesign education. In fact, I've I spent some of the last year working with the New South Wales Department of Education, helping them blue sky. What should the curriculum look like? Because as you say, the kids going into kindergarten today will be working most of their lives in the second half of this century using technologies that we have no idea what they are because we have yet to invent them. It's hard to remember, but that uh, 14 years ago, no one was an iPhone app developer because the iPhone is not 14 years old. 25 years ago, no one was a web developer because the web is only about 25 years old. So no one learned those skills at university who's having jobs in those areas today because, because they were at university before those things were invented. It's worth thinking, if you go back to the 1970s or 1980s even, if you went into an office, it looks completely different today. Nothing like today. There was almost nothing is the same as it was back in the 1980s. If you went into an office in the 1980s, it was a, there was a typing pool and there were no computers. Well, today there are no typing pools and there are only computers. It's hard to imagine what offices will look like. In fact, um, after coronavirus, maybe there won't be offices at all. We'll all be just working from home. Uh, maybe the office will have completely disappeared by then. And we'll all be self-motivated individuals working. So we do have to think carefully about what should we be teaching? What are the skills? Um, how do we teach people grit? Uh, lifelong learning, you know, because you can't learn all the things at school or at university because there are things yet to be invented. Education is, is by its very nature, very conservative, very slow moving profession and one that, that really has to change quite radically so that we're equipped for those new jobs of the future. But it also it's incredibly important to remember that education isn't just about equipping people for jobs. I have had lots of conversations with the secretary, Mark Scott, the head, head of the Department of Education, along this lines, which is that education is about preparing us to be good citizens as much as it is to preparing us to work. It's about meaningful lives. Um, and that goes way beyond work and jobs. And hopefully, if machines are taking all this weight, our lives go way beyond work and jobs. And we actually do spend more time making art and serving our communities and hanging out with our families and doing those things, actually, that are important to us, building our society, our community, as much as as it is feeding ourselves and clothing ourselves and working nine to five. Are there any government initiatives in place focusing on educating people about AI or perhaps publicly available resources on artificial intelligence that you know of and would recommend for general public to get their hands on? And why should we all care? Why is it important to educate ourselves on AI? So as, as an example, Finland has this wonderful elements of AI online course. They have set themselves the goal of educating 10% of Finland in what AI is. And they've got this online course. It takes 15 hours or so to do the course that tries to explain 
bust the myths, the misconceptions, the Hollywood ideas, and give you the reality of what AI is and how it might be in your life. And it is actually already a hidden part of many of our lives. Every time you ask Siri a question or you get a book recommendation from Amazon or your, or your satellite navigation system gives you directions, that's some AI that's doing that. And so they're already on track to get 10% of the population educated about AI. And I've, I've been lobbying our government to do a, have a similar initiative here to get the education system on board with the idea that this is a technology that's going to impact all of our lives. So all of us should understand it. I mean, not everyone's going to obviously program AI, but at least so that we're not taken advantage of and we understand when we're clicking on those buttons, when we download the app, uh, what exactly we're agreeing to. At the end of the day, I say to people, if it's like magic, then we will be taken advantage of. It will seem to us like magic and we won't be able to profit from it. And if, if we have an understanding of what it is and its limitations and its, and its benefits, then we stand to be able to take advantage. And of course, the greatest leveler, the greatest enabler, the greatest uh, force for progress in our society is education. It's an immense public good. One thing that has, has lifted our economies around the world for the last 100 years is the increasing investment we make in education. No one in my family had ever gone to university, and so I've been very lucky, very privileged to have received a, a large amount of education that paid for by the various governments around the world, um, and I can see its ability to lift people. But I'm not sure that universities have gone down the right track and education has become a great business and maybe that universities have lost their way in terms of their ability to transform society by lifting everyone and anyone up. So what functions do you think universities should be serving to help benefit the society? Because to many people, universities are just a stamp of quality that open doors for jobs and opportunities. Universities do a number of different things which are connected, but not necessarily the same thing. One is, as you point out, they, they provide a stamp of quality. If you went to the top-ranked university, then that will open certain job, jobs and doors for you in the future, as well as providing the backbone of research. For example, research that solved coronavirus is largely being solved by universities. And also by providing places of learning. It's worth remembering that Universities were originally the monasteries. They were places you got away from the hustle and bustle of life and were able to surround yourself with other scholars and to stop and think. And equally, institutions that think for the long term. I think one of the problems that we face in society today is that politics has become incredibly short term, focused on the next soundbite, next news cycle. And there are very few, if any, institutions left that can think five, 10, 20 50, 100 years out as to what are the long-term fundamental challenges that we need to deal with. Universities are about the only institution left that can do that, that can think in the longer term, that can think about problems that may not be solved in the next year. It's interesting. I, you know, I talked to my colleagues at Google Research and elsewhere, and all of them will say the next big innovation in AI isn't going to happen at Google, isn't going to happen at Facebook. It's going to come out of some random university, some left-field a maverick idea that's going to come out, just like deep learning didn't come out of Google. Deep learning came out of Jeff Hinton at the University of Toronto, Jan Lacuna at NYU, Ben Gio at uh, the University of Montreal. Didn't come out of any of the tech companies. It came out of 
being nurtured over 20 odd years in an academic environment where you can think about ideas that don't immediately work. And that's where the innovations that will change our lives long term, the, you know, the transistor, the AI will come from. So, Toby, on that note, do you see universities taking an even more relevant role in accommodating people with higher degree qualifications as researchers? Or how society can embrace research as a core component of it? My view is that the PhDs are the lifeblood of research, that uh, they're the thing that keep us old professors honest. The fact that we have young, inquisitive minds that will not accept ideas just because we tell them to accept these ideas, but we'll question every assumption we make. And they keep us honest and they push the field forwards. And I mean, there is a fundamental challenge, which is that we train more PhD students than there are academic positions. So only some people stay in academia. But in a subject like AI and computer science, that's not a problem because there's plentiful places that those people can go off and start companies that use AI working companies that apply AIs. In fact, they can double their salaries compared to being in academia by doing that. So unlike other areas of research, I don't feel too troubled by the idea that we train more PhDs, which is vital to pushing forwards research, uh, than can be employed in full-time academic positions because I see there's plentiful employment for those people. I agree that's the case for topics like AI and computer science, but my fear is more for other relevant areas of research where the outlook is not necessarily the same. Well, those professors will have to justify themselves. I defend to my death the idea of universities. I think they are wonderful institutions. If they didn't exist, we'd have to invent them. If you, if you think 500 years time, what's going to exist? It's not clear which companies exist today, Microsoft, Google, uh, the Royal Bank of Scotland. Uh, it's not clear which of those institutions will still exist in 500 years' time. I suspect probably none of them, because none of them are 500 years old. There are very few companies, a few Italian banks and Dutch publishing houses that are 500 years old. But I'm absolutely confident that in 500 years' time, the University of Cambridge, the University of Oxford, University of New South Wales will all exist and will all be doing somewhat similar functions. They will still be helping to finish people's education. They will be driving forwards research in a number of areas that they do today. And that purpose can never go away. The frontier of knowledge only ever gets bigger. Um, and so their purpose can only increase, can never decrease. Um, and so they perform an incredibly important role, a public good of, of driving innovation in our economies. And it's a pity that governments don't recognize that enough, that they spend so much money on building infrastructure. And yet the return on capital investment you get from, from education is, is, is an order of magnitude. And for every dollar you invest in, in higher education, you get $10 back. And almost no building projects make those sorts of returns. Governments should be probably investing much more in us, especially as we try and get out of the downturn that this pandemic is going to inflict upon the world's economy. So this is the second component of the triangle framework of stakeholders and the growing adoption of artificial intelligence that we have covered, parents and education. And when it comes to the final third pillar, businesses, what should companies consider when they 
evaluate, build versus buy strategy in regards to artificial intelligence and machine learning technology? The advice I always give CEOs and boards is the best investment you can make is to invest in your people to help them skill up in these areas. You can start building some of the skills in-house because, I mean, the other thing about AI is it's not something you can buy and then forget. You know, as the data comes in, the, the algorithms, the machine learning changes, you'll have to be on top of how it changes and it changes the business in which you're operating. A good example I give is uh, last year, Westpac announced that they were laying off 4,000 members of staff and hiring 2,000 new members of staff with digital skills. And I don't think you want to be the business that ends up in that sort of situation yourself. It's an incredibly expensive business to actually lay off 4,000 members of staff. And it's an even more expensive business to hire 2,000 people with digital skills because those people can get jobs almost anywhere today. So you have to ask yourself, how did you not make sure those people were reskilling themselves with the appropriate skills for your business? So one of the most valuable things that your business has is undoubtedly the people within your business, and you should be investing in those people. So it all came in full circle to talent. And to further elaborate on your point on businesses investing in their people, what considerations are important when it comes to talent attraction? The best attractions you can give is to give people the ability to actually run with projects and make change, to give them the space to do that. And, and you'll discover there's a huge, great untapped ambition within many of your people to actually improve your business, to improve your product, to improve your service. And yet they're being held back by institutional barriers and inertia. And so if you can break those barriers down and let, let the people innovate then you'll discover immense talent and desire to actually push the business forwards. We hope that you enjoyed today's episode. In the coming academia-focused episodes, we'll be featuring Dr. Katrin Hillens, who is an expert in the areas of international retailing and product innovation. And she also teaches courses in retailing and channel management at the University of North Carolina. And Dr. Phil Kilby, who is a principal research scientist at CSIRO's Data61. He mainly works on discrete optimization problems, um, particularly related with transportation, and through his career has focused on providing solutions for real-world problems. Thank you for listening. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss out on new releases, and see you guys next time.